Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Glad you're here today. Stand with me if you would. We're so glad that you're here in person and we want to thank all those who are watching online today. We appreciate you're here today. How many feel like you've already been to church? Man, I do. I mean, I really feel, feel good. I feel the presence of the Lord today. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful that you love us, you care for us. Lord, today let our ears be open, our heart receptive to your word. Lord, anoint your minister because your word's already anointed. And Lord, we give you thanks in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're here today. Look at your neighbor and say, you're better looking than I first thought when I came to church. We've been on a series called Scattered But Not Separated, and it's out of the book of James, and I think James has a lot to say to us, don't you? Let me share a story with you. Several years ago, probably in our late 20s, early 30s, Carrie and I used to go to the State Fair of Oklahoma on a very regular basis. We'd go almost every year. It hadn't been in several years, but we would go, and you know, it's very crowded. You have the midway, you have all of the different uh, uh, exhibits and the places you walk through, and and Carrie, as our habit was, and hopefully we, we still do this sometimes, we, we hold hands as we'd walk, you know, and, and I'd put my arm around her waist and we'd walk together. So we're going through the state fair that way, and uh, some way we got separated, and I'm looking at something and someone bumps up next to me. I think it's Carrie, so I just slipped my arm around this lady's waist, and for some reason she took great offense at that, like, oh, whoa, who are you? And on the other side, I'm saying, well, who are you? But, you know, when you get separated, sometimes you connect with things you shouldn't connect with. And so James is really addressing that. We're going to talk about that this morning. But if you really think about what he wrote, all of us are having this same human experience. We have same challenges. Uh, we're all fallen by nature. And we have to persevere. We have to press in. And we have to address all these issues. And James tells us that through his letter that he's writing. And so we have the commonality of our human uh, imperfections and our human challenges. So when he writes, the first thing I want to do is, is just go back and give the address that he starts the letter with. This is James chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, my brethren, count it all joy when you... Now notice he didn't say... Some of you, but he said, when you uh, fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or steadfast endurance and perseverance. So the question is, and let me elaborate on that just a little bit today, who's James? Isn't that a good question? Who is James? Who, who's writing this letter, not just to those who are dispersed and scattered across the known world in that area, but who's James to you? Well, let me tell you who he is. He is the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote this letter and when you think about James, you have to think, what would it be like to grow up with somebody who's perfect? How would you like to be the half-brother of Jesus, who never made a mistake, who is the Son of God, who is God in the flesh, who never had to really be corrected by Mary or Joseph, who kept the law perfectly? How many of you feel in James's pain right now? Uh, th this is someone who, who just was righteous. He, he never needed to be disciplined. And so we do know 
that James is not the only sibling. The Bible tells us that. He had four other brothers and at least two sisters. Now, the Bible says, Mark 6 and 3, uh, this is in his hometown, Jesus' hometown. Isn't this the carpenter? So he took up Joseph's occupation until he was age 30. He went full-time, if you will, in the ministry. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So having a half-brother like Jesus would be problematic. Do you think that they ever heard, why can't you be like your brother Jesus? Now, there could have been a little envy and spite, a little bit of anger, jealousy uh, in that family. And you, you probably could uh, hear some of the arguments behind the scenes. And, and I want to just tell you that there was some issues in the family. And let me tell you why. This is Mark 6, 4, so drop down a verse. But Jesus said to them, and this is his hometown, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own, what? House. In his own house. So there was some dynamics in that house at the time Jesus said this. John 7 and 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So we have no record of any of his family except Mary. We don't know what happened to Joseph. I, my, my opinion is he's died. But we have no record of any of his brothers or his sisters believing in him until later after the resurrection. So you grow up with Jesus. He's different. A lot of different commentaries, a lot of different fables and conjecture that he did miracles when he was a kid. There's no biblical record of that. The Bible says the beginning of the miracles he did was at the marriage of Canaan. So we, we know that from Scripture. So when did James become a believer? Is that a good question? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, listen as I read. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part of them remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or they've died. And after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. James did not become a believer until after the resurrection. So now James, who lived with Jesus, who was raised with Jesus, who didn't really fully understand who Jesus was, we have no record of him believing in Jesus, but Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection. And you know what James had to acknowledge? That's my half-brother. He was dead. He's now alive. And now James becomes a believer. Now, this goes on, and it continues. Now, I want to just share something with you out of the beginning of the writing of Dr. Luke in the book of Acts. This is chapter 1. Uh, Jesus has ascended to heaven. He said, go back to the upper room, wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, when they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Mathis, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. A lot of James in there, but we hadn't got to him yet, the one we're talking about. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his, what? Brothers. So now, 
The family is gathered in the upper room. They're waiting for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and James and the brothers are right there. They're now believers in Jesus Christ, not only as the half-brother, but as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, the Messiah. And how many of you know this has this totally changed the face of James's life? Now, he, he gives us some things here, and, and we want to talk about this because it's so very important. And how many of you are going to help me preach? Uh, my granddaughter was helping me preach there for a moment. And uh, she's the only family member that's helping me, I guess. But uh, James gives us some advice and gives us a, a challenge for us. He says, every believer, no, no matter how long you believe, no matter where you live, even the scattered abroad, you're going to have trials, you're going to have temptation, you're going to have tests. Would you agree with that? And I don't care how long you've lived with the Lord, for the Lord, trials, temptations, and tests. So he gives us that. And then he addresses three things, and I want to do those with you this morning. If you have a pencil and paper, you need to get it out. Um, the first thing he addresses in, in chapter 3 and 4, uh, Matt did 1 and 2, so today I'm doing 3 and 4, is the necessity to control our tongue. Can I have some gasp here this morning? Everyone here has sometimes a difficult challenge to control your tongue. Now, would you control it by saying, Amen, Pastor Mike, that is absolutely true. If you want to mess up your marriage, if you want to scar your children, then just let your tongue run wild. I mean, it, it is something that is thematic. I don't care who you are, uh, where you live. I don't care how old you are. This is something that is very critical. Someone said, I don't care how beautiful you are. If you have an ugly tongue, it's just ugly. And that's really true. So James 3, verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle or control his own body. So if we, if we get hold of our tongue, if we get a hold of what we say, then we're going to have a better time in life. And let me just briefly touch this. There's really two things that he addresses here, and one is bits and bridles. Say that with me, bits and bridles. So he says if you want to control a horse then you have to have a bit and a bridle. And we have a lot of horse people here today. And in the early service, we had even more. One lady said, I'm leaving to go ride the horse uh, this morning. And, and I said, don't let the wind blow you off the horse. But anyway, bits and bridles are to control the horse. A 90-pound woman can control a 1,200-pound horse because they have a bit and a bridle in their mouth. So you can control where you go you can control your future in some way, your marriage, your children, even your own personal attitude by your tongue, what you say. How many of you know there's some things we should be saying and some things we should not be saying? Can I hear an amen to that? So he says bits and bridles. Now the next thing he says, he talks about ships and rudders. So ships, they... They go a direction, controlled by the rudder. They turn right, turn left, controlled by the rudder. Even these massive oil tankers, which are a couple of football field long, I mean, they're massive. And compared to the ship itself, the rudder's pretty small. That's why he says this small member, you have around the tongue, this thing will get you in trouble or it can get you out of trouble. So he says ships and rudders because the rudder controls the ship. And he begins to talk about that. So what we say and how we say what we say really can direct your life and help your life. Or it can really be a problem in your life. Now, 
God created the world, the cosmos, with the spoken word. In the beginning, God said. And in some way, you can control your world by what you say. Now, you can't create the world like God did, but you can create the atmosphere, the tone, the effect by what you say. And I'm going to guess today, everybody here has done something that has messed you up by what you said. Can I hear an amen to that? Or by the way you said what you said. And, and this is really what James is saying. And he uses these words to, con to convey this. In verses 6 through 11, he says our communication can be like fire and poison. We can bless and we curse. We can compare this to water. It can be sweet or bitter, salty or sweet. So he says whatever you say, it can go one way or it can go the other way. And James is saying we can control our life if we can control our tongue. And the only way you can change your words is you have to change your heart. Now, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, what is the it? Those who love it. What is it? It is the power of the tongue. If you want to eat death, you can eat death. If you want to eat life, you can eat life. It's just up to you. Ever how you want to eat, that is up to you. And it is out of your mouth, out of your tongue. So life and death are in the power of the tongue. Most of you know Ronnie. Ronnie was in the first service. He was one of the, uh, uh, the musicians in the first service. So Ronnie, this happened several years ago, and Ronnie has dentures, and he got a new pair of dentures. And so him and Lakita got into some intense fellowship, and they're, they're, they're at loggerheads. And, and I don't know if you've ever done it with your wife or your husband. And Ronnie said something that Lakita took great offense at. And this is what Ronnie said. He said, honey, I'm so sorry. I got these new teeth. And he said, I haven't got them trained yet. And every once in a while, they, they say things that they shouldn't say. How many of you believe Lakita bought that line? Uh, no. But it's so true that we can do things that will actually jeopardize relationships and even jeopardize your walk with God. So you have to be careful not only what you say to other people, you have to be careful what you say to yourself. Because we need to speak positive things, good things. And let me tell you, we need to speak the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So words are very, very important. But here's the second struggle James says we have to have. It's the struggle of keeping our hearts right. The struggle of keeping our hearts right. Because, see, these go hand in hand. Heart produces the words. The words come out of the heart. So Jesus addresses this again, Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the things that defile a person. So what comes out of you was first in you, and sometimes what gets in you is also by words. How many of you know if you read the Word, if you hear the Word, if you're taught the Word, then that good thing comes out of what was deposited in you. So these things go hand in hand. Heart words, words heart. So we have some issues here with our words because we have issues with our heart. Now, I don't know if you ever watch the news, and it's pretty depressing, 
And I try to read news more than I watch it, but this weekend I watched just a little bit of the news, and it is so depressing. I mean, everything, you know, you feel like everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I, I watched one of the, the leaders there in New York City, and, and he was very abrasive. He said, if we don't get what we want, we're going to march, we're going to shed blood, we're going to burn the city down. And I think, why would you even say that? I mean, where are we going? So there's, there's a lot of issues that you're facing, I'm facing, the world's facing, America's facing. I, I mean, we have political issues, we have social issues, we have racial issues, we have Black, black Lives Matter, we have white supremacy groups, we, we have politicians, I don't even know where they're at. I, I mean, we, we have things going on like high crime rate, we have poverty, we have poor leadership, Antifa, we have gender identity issues, uh, perversion, abortion. I mean, this list goes on and on and on. And we can say, these are all social issues. Well, let me just back up for a minute. They are social issues, but they're not just social issues. They are heart issues that have become social problems. And we have to look at dysfunctional hearts dysfunctional sinful hearts produce dysfunction so if we're going to change social issues it's going to have to be a heart change not just the social change you can throw all the money at it you want but it won't necessarily change it you can have all the legislation you want but it predominantly won't change it because it is what it is a heart issue I mean, we, we can do it through education maybe a little bit, but really it's a heart issue. So we can throw money at it. It can be in the education system. It can be in the political realm. It can be in the, in, in, you know, the, the racial realm. It can be in the gender realm. But let me tell you what it all boils down to, and this is what James is saying. You've got to get your heart right. And if you don't get your heart right, these issues will continue to keep going. Can I hear an Amen. So it's not just a change of the issue, it has to be a change of the heart. James chapter 3, verse 13, 14. Who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So he says we have to have this this heart issue dealt with. James chapter 4, 6 through 8. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he's saying, if we're going to get out of this, if you're going to be in this culture to keep your heart right, you've got to watch it, you've got to know it, and you've got to be sure these things don't enter into your heart. Now, what are the issues? He lists them in these two chapters. Bitterness and envy is a heart issue. It's you and I, self-seeking, self-centered people, it's a heart issue. If you live in conflict and confusion, it's a heart issue. If you lust, it's a heart issue. If you murder, it's a heart issue. Covet, heart issue. Adultery, heart issue. Love the world over God, it's a heart issue. All these, he said, are heart issues. Now, if we could understand that in our culture, we wouldn't throw all this stuff toward it. We would change the hearts and everything would change. We, we've thrown education at it, legislation at it, money at it, and guess what? We're worse off now than we've ever been. So we have to realize this is a huge heart issue. Now, here's the antidote. 
And here's the qualities that James gives. If you want to see this turn, this is what you put in your heart. Meekness, humility, purity, peace, gentleness, mercy, good works, willingness to yield, not showing favoritism, submission to God. He says, okay, we got to replace this with this, but the only way that ever happens is you've got to be born again, transformed, and have a new heart. Because that sinful heart has to be transformed by the power of Almighty God. I don't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to have a new heart. No, th this is a God thing. You have to have God to change your heart. And if you're here today and say, well, listen, my world's turned upside down. We have a lot of that tongue issue in our, in our family. Uh, sometimes everybody's heart's not right. Well, let me tell you, you need Jesus. And you need to have that heart changed, transformed by the power of God, so that what comes out of your mouth, out of your heart, is completely different than what you've been getting and doing. Can I hear an amen? Now, let me do the last one here. We're going to spend a little time here. How many of you love me if I do number three? Okay, about five people will love me. But I want to tell you the, the thing he says in the last part of chapter 3 and 4 is there's a warning to these people who are scattered. There's a warning with our interaction with the world. He says you've got to be careful how you interact with the world. Now, why is James writing this? Because these people are scattered. Now, wh when did the scattering begin? Well, there, there, there's some surmising here. Um, Jesus said, you shall be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where in the uttermost parts of the world. So some left with the gospel message. When Stephen was stoned, many people left because now they're killing Christians. That will let you get out of Dodge, right? So now Paul and, and Barnabas and Silas and Mark, uh, they're on their missionary journeys, and now they're spreading the gospel throughout that, that uh, known world. So now we have Christians they're scattered through that known world, and now James is writing this letter to them, to those Jews who are scattered you know, among the world, among the nations. Now, this is what he's saying. You're now in a foreign culture. This is not Jerusalem now. This is not Palestine now. This is not Israel now. Now you're living in Asia Minor. Now you're living in India. Now you're living in Rome, Galatia. You're living in all these different cities. You're in Europe. You're in Asia. You're in Africa. So you have to be careful here how you interact with this world that you're in now. You and I have to realize, my friends, that we are in a different culture. When he says the world here, the Greek word is cosmos, but he's not talking about the physical world here. What he's talking about is a worldly, seductive system. A world that is rebellious against the things of God. And now he's saying to them, and now you've been planted right in the middle of that culture in that world. And you've got to be careful how you interact in that world now that you're in because you've been scattered. Verse 4, chapter 4, adulterers, adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, should we have friends in the world? Sure. Should we preach to the world? Sure. Should we be friendly to the world? Sure. Should we take on the nature of the world? No. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. So he's not saying, you know, get in a monastery, get on the, the hill, the mountain, put a white robe, sing kumbaya, don't see anybody else. How I many of you know that, that doesn't further the gospel, that doesn't, you know, expand the kingdom? But he's saying you have to be very careful how you interact with the world. So we're scattered, 
We have the pull to become like the culture we're in, and we're writing to them, James says, to those who are scattered. You found yourself mixed with another group of people, and let me tell you about these people. They're dispersed and scattered in. They're polytheistic. They're pagan. Some are emperor worshipers. Some worship the gods of the Greeks and the Romans and all kinds of poles and statues and idols. And he says, now that's where you are. And you have to be careful how you're interacting in that culture. Because this is not the first time this happened. Let me take you back. What happened when Israel and the Hebrews were with the Egyptians? Well, Steve Martin would say some have talked like an Egyptian and walked like an Egyptian, and some of you don't even have a clue what I just said. You say, well, I don't think they did. Well, as soon as Moses didn't come down from the mountain quick enough, you know what they're doing? They're building an Egyptian god, and they're worshiping an Egyptian god because some of Egypt got into them while they were in bondage to Egypt. And let me tell you what this culture tries to do. It does two things. It wants to bring you into bondage, and it wants to brainwash you. I'm just now starting the message, so tune in here. It wants to bring you into bondage, and it wants to brainwash you. And so we have to be careful. That's why James is writing the letter. Now, let, let me just go a little bit further. Let, let's take Daniel and, and his buddies who were teenagers. So now these teenagers are in Babylon, and I want you to see what happens. Not only is Egypt trying to hold them into bondage and brainwash them, the Babylonians are trying to do the same thing. They want to bring them into bondage, and then they want to brainwash them. You say, well, Pastor, I don't know. Well, you should know, because I'm going to tell you right now. So Daniel and his three compadres, this is what they tried to do, because here's these teenagers in Babylon, land of the Chaldeans. So Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to teach them the language and the ways of the Chaldeans. Daniel, I want you to eat what we eat, drink what we drink, and I want to change your identity. So... I don't want you guys to be known as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I want to change your name. There's a culture today that wants you to change your identity. Not only who you are as a Christian, but even to the point to change who you are physically. That the culture says, no, you're not that, you're this, but this is the devil's doing. Paul said we're not ignorant of his devices. How many of you know if he did it in Egypt, if he did it in Babylon, he's going to do it today? I mean, he doesn't create anything. He just keeps the same old lie. He just repackages it. And we have to be very careful that if we follow that culture, if we follow, as James says, the cosmos, which means that sinful, seductive system that is fallen in the world, then we'll get sucked into that culture, and it will keep us into bondage, and it will try to change our identity by brainwashing us. Okay? Do you know Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah all have God in their name? When you see the E-L in the last of Daniel here in Mishael, the L means God. I mean, that was, that was one of the names of God. The I-A-A, Isaiah, uh, Azariah here, and then Hananiah, th that is the first part. You know, we, we see it in English here, but it's the Yah. The last part is the Yah. Where do we get the Yah? Yahweh. So all of their names 
have either God or the Yah or Yahweh in their name, and their parents named them because they wanted them to have some identification with the God of Israel. Amen. So now they have an identification, and when they get to Babylon, one of the things they try to do in Babylon, let me take the God out of your name. I want to take the God out of your consciousness. I want to take the God out of your teaching. How many of you know that's something we have to be very, very aware of? And James writes the letter and says, in the culture you're in, and it was diverse, you better be careful how you interact with the world. Because the world will try to keep you into bondage, brainwash you, and take the God you serve out of you. Why? Because he wants you to serve. They want you to serve. The culture wants you to serve, serve them. But really there is a them behind them, and it's satanic and it's demonic. Because this is what James writes. There's two types of wisdoms. Isn't it interesting when James writes this letter, he said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God will give it to you if you ask. But he says in chapter 3 and 4, there's two types of wisdom. Here's the first one. He said the first one is earthly. It is sensual and demonic. Not my words, this is James' words. He said if you get into this worldly wisdom, it is sensual, it is earthy, it is worldly, and it's demonic. But he said there's a second type of wisdom. He calls it the wisdom which is from above. Now, this wisdom from above, this is in, in verse number 17. He says it is pure, peaceable, full of mercy, and it's real. It's authentic. Most of you know this. Over the years, information has exploded. Years ago, what we believed as truth has been found out to be false. Medically, politically, historically. But at the time, it was pervaded as what? Truth. God's truth never changes. His truth never changes. What was true 2,000 years ago or 5,000 years ago or yesterday is still true today. Now, he says that this truth that is worldly is sensual, sinful, it is demonic. So what wisdom do we want? Well, we want, we want the wisdom that's from above. Today, our world has changed so much, if I could go back 30, 40, 50 years ago, 30 or 40, 50 years ago, we had what I would call the home field advantage. How I many you know what I'm saying? Home field advantage. Even if someone wasn't a believer, they respected the church, they respected Christians, and they respected the things of God. They may not have believed it, but yet they respected it. Do you realize years and years ago, we didn't even lock our church? If you want to come in, come in. If you want to pray, pray. Today, we lock it. You have to ring to get in. We have security systems and cameras. It's the world we live in. That's how much the world has changed. So we do not have home-field advantage anymore. We live in a post-Christian world even in America. You say, Pastor, is that really true? Watch the movies. Listen to the music. Watch television. And let me even go a step further. Commercials are even sinful now. Does anybody even get upset over commercials? I said, just me. I get upset over commercials now. 
I mean, I watch this and I'm, I'm thinking, they're feeding a little here and a little here. They're pushing here. They're pushing there. The images, what goes on. I mean, there's men kissing, women kissing. This is not in an R-rated movie. This is in the commercials. Slowly and subtly, we have this invasion of this worldly wisdom that's creeping in. And listen, we're not unsympathetic. We're not ungraceful, don't have mercy, but I'm just telling you, it's the nature of the system. Politics, business, education. What, what is Nebuchadnezzar, what's he saying to these teenagers? We want to re-educate you. What your parents taught you is not true this is the culture of Babylon. We want to re-educate you. And parents, let me say this. Here at the church, we have kids all over the campus right now. We had it earlier today. We have them right now. Listen, we're trying to come alongside of you. We want to help you, but we cannot replace you. You have to be there. What are they teaching my kids in the school? What are they watching on television? What's on their computer? What's on their laptop? What's on their phone? You say, well, pastor, you know, am I supposed to be, uh, you know, looking at that? Goodness gracious, wake up. Because the culture is saying, we want you, we want your kids. And you say, is that new? Let me take you back to Egypt again. Remember Moses going to Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go? There was a point that Pharaoh said, if you men want to go to worship, go worship. But leave your kids here. And Moses said, if we go, we're taking our women, we're taking our kids, we're taking our children, we're all going to go. Why is he saying, leave the kids? Because if I get the kids, I can re-educate them, I, I can reinvent them, I can brainwash them, and they will not be Hebrew anymore, they will be Egyptians. Let me tell you, my friends, we need some believers, whether they're 5 years old, 15 years old, 55 years old, 105 years old, we need to keep we need to keep the finger in the dike. We need to keep the line in the sand. We need to realize the world is coming after you. The world's coming after me. The world's coming after my grandkids and my kids. And this is what James is saying. You're living in a pagan culture, and you have to watch your interaction with the world. Now, this sounds like, oh, boy, he's up there just preaching, preaching, preaching. But I, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just saying, James is saying, this is what this looks like. And what was true almost 2,000 years ago is still true today. So is this some kind of archaic letter that has no relevance today? No, this is right on point to where we are. And, and let me finish with this. The world wants you and I to bow down to their ways. Isn't that the end of it? This, this system, this culture wants you and I to bow down to their ways. You say, Pastor, is that really true? Well, ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't bow down to this system, if you don't bow down to this image, if you don't bow down to this idol, then there are huge consequences. And guess what? You've got to applaud those teenagers, right? Got to applaud those guys. Got to applaud Daniel. He was respectful, merciful, graceful. Oh, King, live forever. But I'm not going to quit praying. I'm not going to worship the gods of the Babylonians. 
I'm not going to eat your meat and your food and your, your unclean things. I'm going to try to at least keep some semblance and identity of who I am in God. Now, this is an interesting thing in the first chapter of Daniel. It seems like God doesn't even show up. You say, well, where is God in all this? Doesn't he look? See? Yeah, absolutely. But when they made their stand first, you'll read it, and you'll read it, and you'll read it, and then there's a verse, and then it says, now God. Sometimes I think God is saying, let's see what you're going to do. Let me see what you're going to do. And when you do the right thing, then the verse comes along, now God. Now God gave them more wisdom than all the rest of them. Now God put them in position. Now God did this. Why is that in there? Because God is saying, listen, you need to realize who you are. Don't let them change your identity, who you are. And try to stay faithful to me in the midst of an unclean, unfaithful world that's trying to change who you are. Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? Bow your head with me this morning. We are so thankful you joined us today. We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you were encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory, and hope changes everything.